Oh my gosh, I'm adopting a puppy right now. But I realize what's at home. Oh no, I have nothing. Well, except unconditional love. But yeah, no crate, no pee pee pads, no dental chews for his little puppy teeth. Before I doubt myself as a new parent, I just get Instacart to deliver everything from PetSmart. Easy, just like raising a puppy is going to be, right? Get pet essentials from PetSmart with Instacart. Visit instacart.com to get free delivery on your first three orders. Offer valid for a limited time. $10 minimum per order. Additional terms apply. You're listening to The Wireless Reader. I'm in Quentin Wolfe. I seldom give much thought to how I look. I'm most conscious of seeing when I'm lining up a camera shot, I suppose. The light must be right. Too little and my subject is a blurred presence in the murk. Too much and they're garish. I give composition a thought. The rule of thirds, the perils of accidental comedy, some pretense to art. But have I ever considered my own role, that of watcher? Are the attitudes of my gaze even worthy of consideration? I might take a less flattering shot if I take less care, but surely, assuming an adequate proficiency in photography, my gaze is the least important component of the transaction. I suppose I'm old enough now to feel that I've witnessed some cultural tides, or a few notable waves at any rate. Things ain't what they were. It's not a question of nostalgia. I don't believe in the far-right fiction of a cultural golden era, followed now by entropy and decline. But we are changing, and in the West, communications innovations have made pundits of us all. The red button, the comments section, Twitter, have democratised opinion, giving the gloriously underinformed, the hysterical and the casually abusive parity of exposure with any given expert. As for those of us in between who are neither lunatic nor especially illuminated and are merely average co-sufferers of the mass delusion that our opinions count for something, well, our egos need a credibility peg on which to hang our hats and to switch metaphors like car drivers, all of whom routinely rate their ability as above average. The majority of we ordinary people harbour a poorly concealed suspicion that our views are a little bit worthier of consideration than those of others given that the others are just avatars in cyberspace, whereas we are flesh and bone. And so we speak as we find. We're cruel to be kind. We pronounce, we pass sentence. We endorse, we like, we retweet, we vote down. We watch TV shows in which ordinary people like us, although slightly more ordinary, of course, and definitely not above average, talk about the TV show that was on earlier. Sports and politics are relayed to us by columnists who give us their view, which we parrot out in turn. We've learned to speak like the judges on The X Factor, or Dragon's Den, or the cookery shows. Though we can't bake, sing, or run a business, although we may fancy we could, and that if we did, would do so with above-average success. Opinion is the oxygen for our suffocated sense of self. But it's a double bluff. We license ourselves to be big mouths because we think no one's listening. We might fancy that for all our preening, we can't change the world. But we do. Oh, how we do. There are no secrets anymore. We're like a drunk man on a bus, muttering to himself and unable to work out how people know what he's thinking. 
everyone knows what you're thinking. Big business knows what you're thinking. Your Facebook friends know. Your laptop and your desktop and your smartphone know. Your refrigerator and your car and your fucking central heating know. Television commissioning editors know. Literary buyers know. Film studios know. Google knows. Your insurer knows. Your bank knows. Amazon knows. The political parties know. The NSA and Homeland Security and GCHQ and the Department of Defense know. Your mother knows. People you know know. People you don't know know. You're not the watcher. You're the watched. And there you are staring into a screen, your tongue hanging out of the corner of your mouth, dishing out your views for all to hear. Yes, there really is someone watching over you. Once we had God for this sort of thing. The fallacy of the Twitter age is that it is through what we say that we define ourselves. In fact, and we know this instinctively, very few people are listened to, as was ever the case. And it is instead by our behaviours that we're evaluated, clinically and constantly. We're not individuals, but aggregated data sets. The only people distracted by our opinions are us. Meanwhile, as digital patterns we flock this way and that in liquid formation, we are part of tribes or demographic groupings, or perhaps one or two of us might perform electronic actions that fit a different sort of template, and in doing so, trigger an alarm somewhere. Surveillance, whether by state or retailer, is achieved through keywords and algorithms by being able to bypass all your bullshit and still accurately predict 99% of what's in your head. You are entirely transparent and mostly disregarded. It's that last part that lulls you into feeling safe. But we are evolving, and tides rise and fall. Once we could not have dreamed of this much information, or of computers that could be worn. Can you imagine being tried on the strength of an agglomeration of everything you've ever said and everything you've ever thought? Can you imagine the day when a human, rather than a program, chooses to look at you? They're starting to peek around the edges. And when they do look at you, naked as you are, what will they see? The difference between a good photograph and a bad one has nothing to do with technical ability or aesthetics. Look at the difference between the clumsy family snap and the sterile professional one. The difference is love. Love when it was taken. Love in its being displayed. Love in how you look at it when you think no one can see you. Increasingly, you are not someone being judged by the pictures on your mantelpiece. It's just too easy to rig. Rather, you are someone being judged by the love or the absence of love in your gaze. The Wireless Reader. Three writers, three different ways of looking on those whom we're supposed to love. Is the eye the last word in unreliable narration? And maybe it wouldn't matter were one gazing upon a distant other, but what if its object is someone who's counting on you to get it right? Viv Broughton visits days of changed status and an unstable self. Fiona Yaronfield strives to understand whether a photographer's child can give consent and asks whether the lens isn't a part of the mirror stage. Anne Wilding checks her phone and glimpses a void... Music is by Richard Anthony J.
The appointment is at two o'clock. They're driving down the motorway at one. She takes two ibuprofen under cover of a false cough. He mustn't notice, mustn't know it will hurt. Anne Wilding. He's too anxious. Asks her yet again about the process. Yet again, she tells him. They will just use a dye and a monitor to check that her fallopian tubes are open. She won't even need an anaesthetic. It's not an operation, it's a procedure. After this, they will know if natural conception is possible. We'll be able to consider next steps. Her own words sound familiar. She realizes they're the recycled words of the doctor three weeks ago, delivered in the same soothing monotone. motorway hurtles past them with a speed that makes her wonder where it's all coming from. The world must be an enormous place to cover such distance and for there still to be further to go. When they get to the clinic, she will soon be in stirrups. Once she's in the stirrups, it will soon be over. When it's over, they will know more about their chances of having a baby. How he wants a baby. They arrive at the clinic 20 minutes early. He thinks they might get squeezed in now if they're lucky. She thinks it doesn't matter anyway. They've both taken the afternoon off. They wait five minutes. The doctor is the one from three weeks ago. Small, immaculate, polite, she radiates competence. She carries out the procedure exactly as described. They're back in the car before there's time to think. The roads are good. It's still light when they get home. Cold, January light. She can have a baby. In the kitchen, she toys with her phone as he makes them coffee. She stops. Here is a photo she didn't take. It is a picture of a road. One of them could have taken it by accident. But where? Where is this? He comes to look, scrunches up his forehead, shakes his head, goes back to the kettle. It isn't any familiar road. It looks like one of those American interstates. Empty, flat, straight. There's something in the distance where the road meets the horizon. A blurred dot. He comes back, puts a hand on her shoulder and her coffee in front of her. She puts down the phone and picks up the cup. The next morning, her phone is still on the kitchen table. She left it there when finally they went to bed, after he asked her again and again if she's sure. There are other options. They could adopt or not have children at all. He means it. Every time they talk, she sees him genuinely try to hide how much the baby means to him. He can't, though. She wakes up her phone to check for missed calls. She blinks. The screen still shows the photo of the road, but the viewpoint has moved forward. A boulder that was a couple of hundred yards ahead is almost alongside now, and that spot in the distance could be a figure. She tries zooming in, but the black smudge just becomes a bigger black smudge. She only has to wait, though. She knows the road will bring her closer. At work the next week, she Googles the distance to the horizon on a flat road. At 200 yards a day, it will take three weeks. She carries on with each day. She doesn't show him the photo. 
He was so happy after the clinic that he stayed in bed with her all weekend, didn't even go for his run. And how can she tell anyone else? If she tells, the road might stop, as if she imagined it, and leave her to face unwanted questions. Is everything okay? Does she want to start a family? Is she happy? Her mother taught and anxious, her friends quietly knowing. So, each day, somewhere private, she monitors her progress along the road alone. The boulders, increasing in size and then gone, mark the distance travelled. There are no other features to orientate her, except the dot getting slightly closer each day. By the middle of the following week, the dot looks like a figure, possibly a woman, headed for the horizon in heavy boots and a hooded coat. The gait of this person makes her tired just looking. At the weekend, they go to a seafood restaurant. With pregnancy now deemed possible, they should enjoy fish while they can. It's always we and never you, as he volunteers along in her sacrifices for the baby. As he drives, he recites his knowledge of their pregnancy do's and don'ts. He used to enthuse like this about bands and films. When they arrive outside the restaurant, the smell is overwhelming. It's a sickly, sugary sensation that gets right into her veins and poisons her whole body with nausea. She blanches as she climbs out of the car, smiles hard to show she's fine, strides toward the restaurant door, runs to the toilet and is sick. The impact to her body is like a punch. She hangs onto the toilet seat to keep her balance against a force that is not part of her. She hasn't experienced this kind of sickness before, but she knows what it means. When it stops, she washes her face, rinses her mouth and takes out her phone. She hasn't had the energy to look at the photo for a few days. The road stretches ahead as before, but the figure is only half a mile away now. Its feet drag, its shoulders slope. It inspires pity, not fear and yet she's afraid. She rinses her mouth again. She won't tell him she might be pregnant. What kind of news is might be for a man who's waited two years? She will either tell him she is, or nothing at all. Back in the restaurant, she says it was diarrhoea, the runny omelette she had for lunch. She doesn't feel great. Can they please go home? The next morning, she does a pregnancy test. It is positive. He's elated. He wants to book a checkup. He wants to go to mother care. He wants to look at sensible cars. He wants to paint the nursery. On Monday, they book her checkup first thing. After work, in the toilets at mother care, the figure in the photo stands still. On Tuesday morning, the figure is a few hundred yards away. It has started to turn towards her. Tomorrow, it will be half the distance. After work, they visit the car dealer. On Wednesday morning, the hood still covers most of the face, but a woman's cheek is visible. They go to B&Q before work. He chooses a colour and some stencils. They can start painting at the weekend. That afternoon is the check-up. Her weight, blood pressure and general health have been under observation for so long there are no surprises. She's fine, everything is fine, it will all be fine. She's going to have a baby. 
That night, she waits for the earliest hour she can feasibly call tomorrow. At dawn, she rolls quietly out of bed, picks up her phone and goes to the bathroom. When she opens the photo, adrenaline surges. That she sees her own face is no surprise. What shocks her is the expression of this woman who has her skin, her features, but surely is not her. This woman is the carefully preserved shell of herself, hollowed out. It is cleverly done. Only a good friend would spot this as a replica, would notice the absence of whatever element it is that makes us real and loved. Close enough to breathe the other's breath, she senses a challenge between them. Only one of us can be me. Instinctively, she looks up at the bathroom mirror to check her true self. She sees there the woman from the photo, alone and completely empty. a women's centre on Brick Lane in East London. You're listening to the music of Richard Anthony J. For more, visit www.richardanthonyj.com. I am aware that the term the loving gaze is rather ambiguous and full of loaded references. This is Fiona Yaronfield. But very simply, I'm interested in exploring how photographers have pointed their cameras, and therefore their gaze, away from the public domain and towards the people closest to them. Towards the people they love. I hope this will encourage an open debate on a topic which appears to elicit emotive responses and raises some very uncomfortable questions. I aim to compare the attitude of the gaze between Jacques Lacan and D.W. Winnicott, two formative psychoanalysts. I want to show the link between the camera as a mirror and Winnicott's mother as a mirror in the development of the baby's separate sense of self. Following Winnicott's model, I'm considering how the enactment of the loving gaze with the camera can facilitate the separation process. I will look at my work from my book up close, which describes the relationship between myself and my daughter, Ophir. I'm aware that this is vast and complex area and much of what I'm thinking about is only at its embryonic stage. As a mother who's photographed her daughter's first 12 years of life, I want to understand the unconscious motivation that has drawn both me and other photographers to explore their private lives. I would like you to see me as a good enough mother. But this path of uncovering and trying to make sense of the drive that turned my camera towards my daughter or fear is unnerving. Is it an act of exploitation to use your unique vantage position of closeness? Can a child, for example, really be in a position to refuse collaborating in the picture-making? Even if the child is happy to collaborate, are they really able to judge how they're being portrayed and in what way the imagery may be used? This is very difficult, considering that the person responsible for making these choices is also the person photographing them. The gaze is a term widely used in psychoanalysis and made popular by Jacques Lacan. 
when he argued that the concept of the gaze is of crucial importance in the mirror stage of infantile development. Lacan suggested that the moment between 6 to 18 months, when the infant looks for the first time into the mirror, he receives a visual image of completeness and perfection. This idealised image is in sharp contrast to the infant's bodily experience of himself, which is clumsy and unintegrated, and where he is unable to perform the motor acts he desires. The mirror offers the infant an image of self which disguises the nature of his incomplete sense. This seductive image of completeness, the infant incorporates as the first objectification of his own self. Yet it's based on lies and deception. It makes us look more whole than we really are. Because we believe it's lies, we lose touch with our real selves and eventually we strive to live out the image that has been given to us by others. For Lacan, then, the other is the one who leads us away from ourselves into false reflections. Like Lacan, I'm also interested in early infantile development, but I see the mirror as the loving gaze of the carer, mother or otherwise, who reflects back to us our true self, rather than Lacan's mother who would follow the looking-glass model and our false reflectors from the start. Lacan would argue that the baby is born into an image the mother already has even before the baby existed and that there is no escape from this. D.W. Winnicott, an English paediatrician and psychoanalyst, used the term maternal gaze to describe the looking of a mother to a newborn baby. He illustrates how a mother holds her infant securely in her arms. She gazes at the baby and the baby gazes back at her. If this mother can really see the small being, then the baby looks to the mother and sees him or herself reflected back in the loving gaze of the mother's face. Winnicott argues that in the first few weeks and months of life, the infant needs to have his mother at his disposal and be able to use her and be mirrored by her. He suggests that this holding environment is the foundation of the development of the infant's sense of self and his own existence. With the care that it receives from its mother, each infant is able to have a personal existence, and so begins to build up what might be called a continuity of being. On the basis of this continuity of being, the inherited potential gradually develops into an individual infant. Winnicott suggests that if the mother's face does not respond to her baby's needs, say, for example, she's depressed or preoccupied by her own fears, projecting all her expectations on her infant then the baby does not see himself, but the mother's face. The mother's face is not then a mirror. This failure would mean that the child would be without a mirror and would search for one for the rest of his life. This infant would begin to develop a false sense of self, one that adapts to the mother's needs and not a sense of its own importance. Winnicott stresses that the child who now sees the mother's face and not his own reflection becomes preoccupied with it, and in order to read and predict her moods, he watches it, adapts himself to it. In this way, he reacts to what he sees, rather than developing a creative interchange between self and other. When my daughter, Ophir, was born with Down syndrome, it was very unexpected. I don't believe I was depressed, probably more in grief. I'd lost my fantasy child, one that I hadn't even known I was dreaming of. I also lost a belief about myself. I had to learn how to see her. Ophir's disability is visual, 
Every time I looked at her, this Down syndrome layer faced me. This layer filled me with anxieties about her care, health, her future dependency, and I found it very hard to really see beneath it to this beautiful, tiny being. I noticed that when my own fears, disappointments and comparisons were triggered, then there was this inner dialogue, which interrupted contact with her and distorted my perception of her. For me, even a tiny gesture of her fears seemed to have inflated significance. I was lucky that my body seemed to instinctively know how to respond to her, and I found that contact through touch came very easily, almost like an animal sense. But my eyes, maybe because they're too close to my brain, were blinded by disability. I'd like to break up the photographic experience into two things, into capture and then the image. So naturally, I photographed her. At the time, I was not conscious of my experience, but on reflection... I realised that when I looked through the camera, I could really see her and that that mask, as I called it, of Down syndrome, lifted. It became clearer and in these moments when I was photographing her, I felt quietly present. For me, photography is not about freezing fleeting time, turning it into past tense, but about staying present in the now. I know that it is often said that the camera distances us from our subject that photographers hide behind the lens and that in itself it can be seen as a defensive activity. If we go back to Lacan, we could argue that like the complete image of the mirror, the camera can offer an image of wholeness that covers up what we know to be full of cracks. Many of our family photographs are based on these lies and we generally accept today that the camera falsifies the picture. In contrast to Lacan, Winnicott's version of the same event has a positive and creative meaning. And I believe if the subject is approached with a loving gaze, maybe the camera can penetrate in some way to the soul, to something not complete, but real. Here with Ophir, I believe it enabled this space to open up between us, which was very helpful. In this space, I could more easily accept her, see her beauty and her potential. The gaze through the viewfinder narrows by blocking out distractions and simultaneously opens up one's vision to take in more. Stepping back and just observing changed my perception. Rather than being so merged and identified with her, the distance enabled me to separate my fears and my vulnerability rather than project these onto her. It's a type of seeing which I also understand to be the first step to psychological separation. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. There are two processes in relation to the development of the self. A healthy, good experience of symbiosis, where basic trust is established. And secondly, a differentiation from this oneness. Initially, the baby doesn't know he exists and possibly only has an experience of being. Only the mother's gaze brings the awareness of his existence. In the beginning, the baby does not realise the mother is separate from himself. Her attunement means there is no significant discrepancy between his need and her response. 
They are in a state of merger. Psychological separation only occurs when the mother's responses begin to fail and then a gap occurs between them, what the baby needs, wants, expects, to what actually arrives. The baby's omnipotent illusion is destroyed. At this point of separation, Winnicott was interested in what the baby used to fill this gap, which was outside of his body. The discovery of a piece of material became the creative solution to the baby's problem. This blanket is magically transformed as though it is mother. By using the blanket, the gap space does not open up. The blanket space is a potential space, not an actual one. A space in between me and not me. This is the space I feel or fear and I entered. We are not merged, but we are also not separate. Somewhere in between. It's a paradoxical state, which is hard to describe. A kind of potential space. She knew I was there. She knew I was photographing her, but she generally ignored me. We were not constructing these images together. It was more like playing alongside each other rather than in the same game. I experienced myself very connected both to her and to myself. In this way, the space of photographic capture is like the potential space that Winnicott describes, a space in between us, one where we are still held together by the holding environment of our creativity, but not merged. The beginning of this separation. In this way, taking photographs of loved ones actually facilitates a separation process. The photograph is the embodiment of the gaze and in itself a separate physical entity. Reflection of oneself is confirming and especially children love to see themselves. It's an opportunity to be seen and admired. It gives children a strengthening experience as they communicate the message, this is me. In this way, the photograph is like Winnicott's mirror. If the image is a mirror, then maybe even the photographer could be seen like the good enough mother who really sees her subject, validating his individuality and confirming both his separateness in the world and his connection to others. Yet I experienced a paradox, as I recognise that the image is a reflection of me, and it gives me a mirror, and when I look at it, I also experience my own sense of existence. I have to ask myself, is she really a subject or a narcissistic object? Image, landscape, black and white, a naked girl in the bath. We see only her body which is mottled. Are these tattoos? Injuries? I was responsible for the accident that resulted in these burn wounds. This traumatic event filled me with guilt and self-loathing for being so stupid and careless. Then why did I want to photograph these wounds? Somehow the evidence of my irresponsibility resonates with a truer sense of myself. Not that I am irresponsible but that I make mistakes because I am human and imperfect. There is a desire to show this incomplete image, not to fear it and hide away as I might have as a child. When I photograph it, I learn to recognise it, accept it, even love it. And I know this because when I actually do look at the image, I feel compassion. I am reminded of our vulnerability, and I then feel less punitive towards myself. Noah loves this photograph because she feels like a war hero who survived and has the scars to prove it. Actually, there is no scar left on her body. This is her only evidence. Image. Portrait. A street scene. Continental balconies overlook a road junction where the waif-like figure of a black-haired infant is crouched on the street corner, looking at us, her face indistinct. Ophir would sit down anywhere. She would get just tired... It made me feel restricted and helpless. 
When she got too big to carry and too big for a buggy, I would make her walk. I always carried a camera in my bag. I didn't always use it, but I needed it with me. It was in one of these moments when my frustration was rising, when we were stuck somewhere, me refusing to pick her up and her refusing to budge. I'm watching off ahead of her, sick of being held back by her difficulties. I want to disappear, but duty makes me turn back to check her, there at the side of the road. And then I see the frame. I lift my camera and now I see how small she is and how strange the place must be for her. And instead of walking away, I walk closer to her and I take this image. The act broke the deadlock. Lifting the camera, framing the image helped me change my perception and also triggered my creativity. I stopped feeling restricted and helpless. By accessing my own creativity, I found a solution to our stuckness. Something has softened inside me and I invent a game which triggers her creativity and energy for the rest of the walk. Image, landscape, a swimming pool, blue like a hockney. Centred in the foreground, her head bowed so we're unable to see her features, a girl is emerging. I could have photographed her practising her swimming or jumping in the water in delight, but I chose the moment where she is alone, holding on, faceless. She is not of fear here, she is an expression of what is inside me. Maybe it is related to her, maybe about a part of me, it's unclear. Actually, in this beautiful blue pool, under the blazing sun, I see how I imprison my child with my own anxiety. Maybe it's me that is holding on to the edge, or needs armbands to stay afloat. The photograph taken, like any family snap, is different, because it doesn't enter an album, but the image is reflected upon. It becomes, for me, an opportunity to explore the unconscious. This is possible because the photograph is a tangible form, a separate entity outside of myself. It now contains my difficult feelings. In much the way that a mother contains her baby's difficult emotions, her words are the form that make the anxiety manageable. So does the photographic image. These feelings are given a form and the form contains and holds what might otherwise be overwhelming. This gives me a feeling of safety. Not only are these emotions contained, but also I can control my interaction with them, viewing them from a distance and visiting them and revisiting them when I need to. The loving gaze is a portrait of a relationship. It shows our fundamental need to know ourselves in relation to another. It is an authentic and open process which the camera facilitates. To turn the camera towards the people you love is an attempt to probe into those deep and subtle relationships, not to affirm the already known. The need and interest in depicting one's private environment and genetic heritage reflects a widespread need to understand more clearly who we are and where we come from. For me, the frame is both a mirror of the loved one, our relationship and evidence of my own inner world. Maybe the motivation to create a book that holds the fragments of our subjective experience together is not to stop time. In this small frame, I'm able to distill huge events and feelings into small, manageable elements. This frame became a way to make this material of our lives manageable, 
to reflect upon and to understand. The act of making experience visible is a means of releasing it from inside and making space for what's new, a way to let go. And like Winnicott's blanket, this creative process was gradual, bit by bit and image by image over years, till now it can be left upstairs somewhere on a shelf. I'm now exploring new subjects. Meanwhile, she's in her bedroom getting ready to meet her friends, probably gazing at herself in the mirror. Fiona Yaronfield is an artist and arts psychotherapist. She's one of the founders and co-editors of Uncertain States, a lens-based contemporary photography platform. In 2008, she published Up Close, A Mother's View. You're listening to The Wireless Reader. I'm in Quentin Wolfe. Elizabeth, what is it, Frank? Come and have a look at this, won't you? Viv Broughton. The minute Frank saw the photograph, he knew something was wrong. It had looked slightly peculiar at the time it was taken, but he just assumed it was because the picture was compressed and digitised in the LCD screen on the back of the camera. Or maybe it was uncompressed or undigitised. Frank Wilkinson was hopeless with new technology. Anything to do with computers. Which was probably why they retired him early. As chief accountant at Dunham Bradshaw, he had become something of an embarrassment, insisting on the use of handwritten double-entry ledgers when the whole world has switched to Sage or QuickBooks. When it comes to finance, books done quickly are books done badly, he used to say. In the end, though, Frank was quite happy to go. They offered him a generous retirement package, a promise of some highly paid consultancy work, and a seat on the board, so he wouldn't be severing his connection with the company entirely. Once Frank had accepted the inevitable, his last day couldn't come quickly enough. Everyone gathered in the boardroom to raise a glass and hear Jim Hemsley, the CEO, pay fulsome tribute to Frank's immense contribution to the growth of the company, despite having instigated his removal in the first place. They presented him with a solid silver tankard, inscribed with his name and years of service, 1973 to 2010. It felt as though he were being presented with his own ashes. Thirty-nine years, thought Frank. What did I do wrong? The top-of-the-range Nikon camera was the firm's official retirement gift. When he first tried to use it, Frank suspected that they had played a joke on him. It was even more complicated than the computer they tried to make him use for the accounts with numerous buttons and levers and a 75mm screen to view the picture and adjust the settings, of which there seemed to be more than a 100 combinations. The manual was the size of a novella. Fortunately, the button marked Auto proved remarkably useful, 
overriding all the other settings, and the subsequent photographs seem to be of a surprisingly professional standard. At least, as far as he could make out on such a tiny screen. Of course, being computer illiterate, Frank didn't have a PC, so he wasn't able to view the images at full resolution. But when he collected the prints from Click, the camera shop in the Arndale Centre, they looked quite marvellous. Rich, perfectly balanced colours, pin-sharp focus, everything wonderfully larger than life. Except for the one of himself that he'd taken in the bathroom mirror, which made him look like a wizened old man. A few days after his retirement, Frank took his wife away from the grey rains of Manchester for a holiday of a lifetime in Hawaii. They stayed for a month on Maui, and although they were bored after the first week, Frank had the new camera to play with. Having discovered by chance how to delete a picture, he set about photographing everything that moved, as well as half the things that didn't. Elizabeth wasn't really interested in photography, but she made encouraging noises when Frank showed her the screen every five minutes. Very nice, dear, she would say. Occasionally, she was pressed into service to take a few photographs of Frank himself, and it was these that caused the trouble. What is it this time, Frank? He thrust a picture at her. A nice holiday portrait with the marina in the background. Oh, that's lovely, Frank. You look very distinguished. It's not me. What do you mean? It's not me. I don't look like that. Yes, you do. In fact, I'd say that I captured your likeness rather well. Frank tugged at the sleeve of his wife's cardigan and led her to the large oval mirror in the sitting room. Elizabeth sighed. If this was what he was going to be like, then she was beginning to wish he'd never retired. He pointed at the mirror. There, that's me. That's what I look like. He held up the print. The face was puffy, blotched and lined, with a bulbous nose and small piggy eyes. Not like that. It wasn't mentioned again. Instead, Frank read the Nikon manual from cover to cover. He started to experiment with the various settings and exposure options. During the course of which, he discovered that there was a shutter delay, which allowed him to take self-portraits without involving Elizabeth, who clearly didn't have the first idea what she was doing when it came to taking pictures. I'm off to the coffee morning. I'll be back at 12.30. Frank waited until he was sure she was gone. Safely ensconced in the study, he set the camera on a bookshelf, roughly at head height. He pressed the ten-second timer button and got himself into what he imagined was the correct position. His first few attempts were not good although he did achieve a crisp portrait of his shirt and golf club tie. Then, by bending his knees in the manner of an ageing ballerina, he took an unusual picture of the top of his head, a wispy flourish of white hair along the lower edge of a plain white background. 
it could have been a lesser-known Rauschenberg painting. Eventually, by trial and error, involving dozens of deleted attempts, he got the composition and focal length about right, head and shoulders more or less centred, image sharp and clear, easily the best picture quality he'd achieved so far. Any man would have been proud of the result. Any man other than Frank, that is, who now looked even worse than before. Haggard, mad staring eyes, mouth twisted into a grotesque smirk. It was an obscene vision, like a pink walnut straining to defecate. If he took it to click, they might bar him for life. In the middle of the night, Frank woke with a start and began to worry about everything. Being retired, having no job, nothing to fill his days. In particular, he fretted about getting old and becoming decrepit, looking monstrously ancient, even though he felt no different to the way he felt twenty years ago, especially after the holiday. By the time dawn crept through the curtains, Frank was half demented. That photograph. What if this is what I really look like? He slipped out of bed and padded quietly downstairs. Closing the study door, he found the manual where he'd left it on the desk. Perhaps the settings had been all wrong, he thought. Perhaps some kind of fisheye preset or strange colour filter had been switched on inadvertently. Possibly the flash was doing something weird with this horrible low-energy lighting that was everywhere now. He opened the manual, and there, right at the beginning, was the manufacturer's unique selling point. This precision camera has been designed to reproduce scenes and images exactly as they are. Whichever settings you choose, what you see is what you get. For once, the old adage is true. The Nikon X600 is one camera that never lies. Elizabeth. Frank's first board meeting was on the Friday. He couldn't afford to miss it, but nor could he bear to face his colleagues looking like this. I can't go to the board meeting. Why ever not? If you miss the first one, they'll take it very badly. In any case, Frank, after such a long time away... Everyone will be looking forward to seeing you. That's the problem. I look terrible. What will they all think? They won't think anything, you old silly. You look just the same as you always have. That stuck in Frank's mind and put him right off his food. He suffered bouts of mild diarrhoea and became dehydrated. Elizabeth tried to make him go and see Dr Patel who came from Bangladesh and therefore would know all about that sort of thing if anyone did. But Frank was stubborn. Not least because he'd discovered two strands of hair on his pillow that morning and was now convinced it was bowel cancer. The Friday started badly. It was wet and windy and he'd lost his parking place to the new chief accountant. The upper deck of the bus from Ancoats smelled of damp clothes and other people's armpits. He was drenched and his carefully combed hair had been blown all over the place. He tried to check his reflection in the window, but a teenage girl with thin legs thought he was trying to look up her skirt. When the bus arrived at the stop on Deansgate, he waited in the queue on the stairs, peering closely at himself in the security mirror, 
until he spotted the girl again, behind him on the stairs, giving him an evil stare. Felicity Barr looked up from reception as Frank hurried through, coat collar turned up high. He was late, only by a minute or so, but he was late. "'Good morning, Mr Wilkinson. Good to see you again. Did you...?' But he had already disappeared into the lift with three smartly dressed young people he didn't recognise. His legs were shaking and his mouth was dry. He felt like a walking cadaver with a Stan Laurel hairdo. They would know immediately that something was seriously wrong with him, he thought. Some appalling illness that had horribly distorted his features. The meeting hadn't quite started, but the boardroom was full. He tried to slip in through the end door unnoticed, but marketing director Ted Jameson spotted him straight away. Frank, old boy, good to see you. How's retirement treating you? You look... Frank turned his face away, pretending to be preoccupied with a thermos flask of coffee and a plate of biscuits on the side table. Fortunately, Jim Hemsley intervened, calling the meeting to order. First things first, gentlemen and lady. I'm sure we'd all like to welcome back Frank Wilkinson. Looking, well, different, I think, is the word. A murmur rippled around the table. It sounded like laughter. Hmm, remarkable. Good Lord. Frank couldn't remember a thing about his first board meeting, except that he felt mortified throughout. Every time he looked up from his agenda, someone seemed to be looking at him, often more than one person, staring in horror, no doubt. The minute it was over, he scooped his notes into a briefcase and made for the door as quickly as possible. He was feeling physically violently sick. Bye, Frank! Once he'd gone, the remaining directors looked at each other across the polished walnut table. Jim Hemsley was the first to speak, which permitted everyone to have an opinion. Well, I'll be damned. What the hell's happened to Frank? He's changed, that's for sure. To look at him, I could hardly believe it was the same person. Extraordinary. He's lost so much weight. They shook their heads slowly. Seeing Frank like this had come as quite a shock. Ted Jameson tapped his finger on his lips as if he'd just thought of something. And he slipped his hair up. They nodded sagely. One or two considered their own early retirement. Looks twenty years younger, at least. Bursting with energy, too. Did you see the way he shot out the door? Never seen the old boy move so fast. Jim Hemsley checked his phone for messages. If I didn't know better, I'd say he's having an affair. Afterwards, they crowded into the lift, chuckling quietly. Even Annabel Fletcher, the new chief accountant, joined in. Well, who'd have thought? Sly old dog. Viv Broughton is a music historian and the owner of The Premises Studios in East London. For more information about the writers, go to thewirelessreader.com. You're listening to The Wireless Reader. Contributors were Anne Wilding, Viv Broughton and Fiona Yaron-Field. 
Music by Richard Anthony J. Production by Bernadette Barclay. I'm N. Quentin Wolfe. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.